Imagine you walk into a restaurant and order a steak. 20 minutes later, the waiter comes to your table and puts a plate of spaghetti in front of you. He says, it's the best spaghetti you'll ever eat. Would you be happy? Of course not. It's not what you ordered. It's not even close. It seems to me that that's a bit the way it is with the church today. Jesus gave us careful instructions to his disciples after he was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven of how his church was to operate. Rather than diligently studying the early church and Jesus' instructions, we've done things our own way. As a result, few churches today are reaching many people for Christ and experiencing miracles and power like the early church. Religious pollster George Barnaf says, or found, very few people believe the church can do anything that will cause much of a stir in the world. So can the church, can our church make a difference? This is the fifth in a series of messages called Unstuck, How the Early Church Changed the World. It's based on the book of Acts. In just a few days after Jesus ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit came and 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ. And then more were added daily. But almost immediately, the church faced headwinds. We face headwinds today. When COVID struck 18 months ago, churches were closed, while other businesses were allowed to stay open. It was very arbitrary. I sometimes hear media commentary, commentators and politicians say that the Christians are the main problem in the world. Uh, if you'd like to follow along in uh, the Bibles we have under the seats, it'll be Acts chapter 4. It'll be on page 1093. As we come to the chapter 4, the question is, will the opposition stop the growth of the church? And the question for us is, will opposition we're facing stop us? The opposition in the early church comes in the form of a lame man who was healed. The people of uh, Jerusalem are astonished by the miracle, so we find a large crowd gathered around Peter and John. The priests and the captain of the temple guard, here we're going to learn who the opposition is. And the Sadducees came up to Peter and John. So there were priests, the captain of the temple guard, he's in charge of the police force. This indicates to us an arrest is imminent. He's second in command to the high priest and the Sadducees, the Sadducees run the government in Jerusalem, came up to Peter and John. Uh, the Sadducees uh, work with the Roman government, and so they're trying to get along with the Romans, so they oppose anything new that will rock the boat politically, like Jesus being raised from the dead. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. 
They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. The Sadducees are concerned with anybody that believes that Jesus was raised from the dead. They're afraid they're going to lose these people. So they put Peter and John in prison. But Luke wants us to know that does not stop the church from growing. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Luke limits himself to just men who believe. So if you add in women and children, the church has certainly grown beyond 10,000 people at this point. They could put Peter and John in prison, Luke says, but they couldn't stop the message of Christ from going out. In fact, Christ uses the persecution against the church to force people out of Jerusalem, and then the gospel spread throughout Judea and Samaria. Likewise, historians tell us the church in China grew during the Cultural Revolution when the Communist Party tried to stamp out Christianity, purge itself of Christians and Christian literature. They forced Christians to move out of the cities to rural areas, but it backfired. Christians took the message with them, and so the Christian faith grew throughout China. And today we believe there are 350 million Christians in China. Likewise, Luke is telling us, in spite of Peter and John being put in prison, the church grows. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. So Luke says Annas is the high priest, but in fact, the Roman procurator removed him from office in A.D. 15. So some critics seize this and say, aha, Luke made an error. But the high priesthood was a position for life, and the people still recognized Annas as the high priest. And he wielded his power through his sons, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander. Luke knows that wily old Annas is really the man in power. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? How did you do heal this man? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, here's how. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, in the previous chapter, Luke tells us the man was jumping and dancing, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, asked Peter and John to go out, and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked, 
Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, healing this man, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name, in the name of Jesus Christ. They can't deny the miracle, the man standing right there. They can't deny that Peter and John are speaking with great persuasion. So what can they do? All they can do is warn them. Don't speak about Jesus and him being raised from the dead anymore. Then they called them in again and said to them, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. He was of age. He is standing there. They couldn't deny it. And the church grows. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests, get this, became obedient to the faith. Even Pharisees and Sadducees became believers in Jesus Christ. Luke tells us the gospel spread like a raging fire. Luke is telling us sharing Christ is unstoppable. Can we thrive in the face of opposition? Did the early church thrive in the face of opposition? Why did it grow? Maybe you make no claim to faith. But you wonder, what was their secret? I'd like to suggest four reasons the early church grew and four things we can do to follow their example. First, be Christ-centered and spirit-led. When the Sadducees came to Peter and said, how did you do this miracle? He could have said, ah, you know, it's just a little trick I learned. But no. He said, it is by the name of Jesus Christ that this man stands before you healed. He gave credit to Christ. Then Luke tells us, Peter responded to the Sadducees, and he tells us, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. The secret to the early church growing is that the early believers were Christ-centered and Spirit-led. If we want to see our friends, neighbors, work associates, family members come to Christ this year, we have to be centered on Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit. We can't do anything without their power. Luke tells us, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. Now, Luke doesn't mean that the disciples were illiterate. It just means that they didn't have formal rabbinic theological training. I mean, one, uh, John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. And I can tell you, 
he uses excellent Greek. It's highly sophisticated. Clearly, John was educated. Matthew writes the Gospel of Matthew, another one of the disciples, and he does a beautiful job. Clearly, he was educated. Peter used a ghostwriter for his work, First and Second Peter and the book of Mark. He used Mark to help him. So Peter wasn't a writer, but he was certainly intelligent. Jude, Jesus' brother, wrote the book of Jude. James, his brother, became the leader of the church and wrote the marvelous book of James. So these people were intelligent. Sometimes people say, oh, they, you know, Jesus' followers are all just dumb fishermen. They weren't. And many of them clearly were educated. They all saw themselves as ministers serving Christ. They reached out to people. That's why the church made such an impact. Second, speak the truth. Uh, There's a spiritual and moral vacuum in our culture. Only 22% of Americans uh, believe in absolute moral truth. This is uh, George Barna. Of those, 36 and under, only 13% do. Amazingly, among those who say they know they'll go to heaven after they die because they have confessed their sins and accepted Christ as their Savior, only 32% believe in absolute moral truth. This is why we're facing problems. We've abandoned truth. Once we had a moral consensus. Not everybody lived up to the standard, but everybody agreed on it. Not anymore. Uh, The book of Judges seems to be uh, eerily prophetic. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound familiar? No society can last long when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Into this culture steps the early church. And they say, salvation, and this is one of the most important verses in the book of Acts, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. They said, Jesus is the only one that can get you to the Father. If you're not a follower of Christ, you might think this is arrogant and intolerant. It would be arrogant if we thought it up, but we didn't. We're simply saying what Jesus said. It's not arrogance to teach what Jesus taught. Arrogance is when we try to teach whatever truth we want. To dismiss Christ as mistaken is arrogance. Some think it's inappropriate for Christians to talk about Jesus to other people. This is one of Satan's strategy to intimidate Christians, making us think things like, I can't share Christ with my friend. I might infringe on his rights. We become silent. We must return to the attitude of the early church who said, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help 
speaking about what we have seen and heard. Our position should be, we can't help but speak about Jesus. If you see people uh, canoeing down a rapids and you know there's a waterfall 100 yards ahead, you know, you say, hey, stop. You might cause them a little bit of anxiety, but would it be better just to smile and wave? And is that the more loving thing to do? So in the name of tolerance, we're supposed to withhold grace from people Christ came to rescue? I believe the early church grew because the early believers believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. And they held as an incontestable fact that Jesus Christ is the only one who can get us reconciled to the Father. One of the books I read this summer was Jim Collins' uh, Be Entrepreneurial 2.0. Jim Collins is one of the most popular and famous business consultants in the world today. And kind of his specialty has been focusing on why do some companies grow and do so well, and why do others fail? And uh, one of his principles, he calls the Stockdale Principle. Why did some people make it through the Vietnam prison camps while others died? He says the ones who died, Stockdale said this, the ones who died were the optimists. They were the ones that say, oh, we're going to make it through these prison camps. We'll be out by Christmas. And then December would come and go, and they didn't get out. And they were distraught. And they gave up and died. He says the ones that made it believed that they would get out someday, but they faced the brutal fact, I might not get out by Christmas. And so Collins is saying, companies that succeed must retain undying faith that they will prevail in the end But meantime, in the meantime, they confront the brutal facts. So we must believe that Christ prevails in the end. We know that's how it ends. And never give up that belief. But at the same time, we face the brutal facts that we're being strongly opposed today. Three, show grace. Most people love being around Jesus. They love to hear him teach. They invited him over to their homes. Today, most people don't want to be around Christians. Ask people on the street, what do you think of Jesus? And they'll say things like, oh, he was beautiful. What he taught. He liberated women. He was brilliant. He's around the world, highly thought of. But ask people on the street, what do you think of Christians? And their countenance will change. Their smiles turn to frowns. And you're likely to hear answers like, Christians are closed-minded. Christians are judgmental. They're hypocrites. Why is that? What did Jesus show that we don't? Grace. People sense that Jesus loved them. Even when he spoke hard truths to them. He showed grace. So the Apostle John writes, The Word became flesh, 
that's Jesus Christ, and made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus spoke the truth, but he also showed grace. What would happen if people saw us not just as dispensers of truth, but also as givers of grace? What if people heard the message of Christ not as a message of judgment, but as a message of hope? Many times I hear Christians described as self-righteous. How can a message of grace be perceived as self-righteous? Could it be that people do not hear us acknowledging our own sins, but only pointing out theirs? In speaking truth, it's easy for us to become judgmental. We have the greatest message of grace in the world, yet somehow we come across as being devoid of grace. Last week, I read Lisa Beamer's book, Let's Roll. It's the story of her husband, Todd, organizing people on Flight 93, United, uh, on 9-11-2001, that left from Newark, headed for San Francisco, and four terrorists took it over. And just just about Cleveland, they turned it around, and they were headed, apparently, for the Capitol or the White House. And in the book, they tell about all the passengers on there. It was quite a roster. There was quite a few strong guys, and uh, one of the uh, flight attendants uh, did judo, and uh, so Todd apparently organized that group, and uh, they never made it, but they stopped the evil plot and the plane crashed outside of Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Even though the terrorist took her husband and the father of her three children, she says around the country today, I forgive them. If Lisa can forgive the terrorists, then we can forgive those who hurt us. I think the early church grew rapidly because the early believers were filled with grace. Let me give you some examples. So Luke tells us, they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So the early believers found favor with the crowds. Next one. And they were highly regarded by the people. So the early believers were highly regarded not so sure that's true of us today. Next one. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. So Stephen was filled with grace. And he talked about Christ and the resurrection, so they stoned him. So notice what happens. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. They didn't just speak the truth. They showed grace, kindness to people. It's not enough for us to offer grace or truth. We have to offer both. And the final thing I think we learn about the early believers is pray. After the Jewish leaders warned Peter and John, don't preach anymore about Jesus, 
and him being raised from the dead, they find the other disciples and they tell them about their threats and then they pray. Look at three quick things we can learn from their prayer. This is one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. First, pray with other believers. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Do you pray with others? If you're married, do you pray with your mate? If you're in a growth group, do you pray together? Make sure you don't spend all your time studying and sharing prayer requests that you have no time left to actually pray. Great things happen when we pray. A missionary told this true story to his home church in Michigan. He was serving as a medical missionary in Africa. And every two weeks, he had to travel from where he was to another city, and he got money from the bank, and he bought medical uh, medicines, and he went back. He did this by bike, and it was a two-day journey, so he had to camp at the midpoint. So he made this trip one day, and when he got to the city, he found two guys fighting, and the one that kind of lost was in bad shape, and so he, he helped him out. He was a doctor, and, uh, you know, bandaged his wounds. Two weeks later, he was making the same trip, and he ran into this guy. This guy actually came up to him, and he said, Hey, you know, we know who you are, that you do this trip every two weeks. You have money, and you have medicines. And so we made a plan at your campsite that we were going to kill you and take your money and drugs. We went to do it, but we couldn't get to you because there were 26 armed guards around you. Missionary thought, Pretty sure I was alone. He says, no, for sure. There were five of us, and we all counted, 26. And as the missionary is telling the story, one of the guys stood up in the church, and he said, he, he confirmed the, the date that this had happened. He says, you know, on that day, I was getting ready to go golfing, and I had this prompting from the Holy Spirit that I should pray for you. And it was so strong, I called some other guys in the church, and they got others, and we gathered to pray. And when the missionary heard this church, uh, what he was most surprised by was the guy had the, the, the men all stand, and he counted them. There were 26 men standing that had prayed for him that day. Second, pray God's promises. So, here's what they pray. Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So they're praying this. Why do people always work against you, God? And against your son, Jesus Christ. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, Jesus Christ. And then he, they, they give them an example. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together. Now, Herod and Pontius Pilate were not friends. They were enemies. They hated each other. But they got together with the high priest... Annas, 
conferred together to put Jesus to death on the cross. They met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, the high priest, in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So they're asking, Lord, why do nations work against you? Why are they against Jesus Christ and the gospel? They're reciting Psalm 2, where it foretold that nations would oppose the Messiah. They remind themselves that God foretold that people would, nations would be against Christ. Third, pray for God's honor. Now here's what they ask God. They haven't asked for anything yet. Now they come to it. Now, Lord, consider their threats. They're they're telling them you can't speak about Jesus anymore and the resurrection. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They don't pray for their safety. They pray for boldness, not to give in to the threats, but to continue to speak about Jesus. They pray for God's honor. They pray for him to do mighty miracles through them so people will believe that what they're saying about Jesus being raised from the dead is true. So God answers their request with a resounding yes. Look at what happened after they prayed. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. God supernaturally shows his pleasure with their prayer. They're praying for his honor. And so he fills them with the Holy Spirit and shakes the building where they're meeting. They pray for God's honor. Pray for boldness to share Christ with your friends and family. Pray for grace to love your neighbor. God's happy to answer such prayers because they increase his honor. So what's the point? Sharing Christ is unstoppable. How? Be Christ-centered and Spirit-led. Don't try to do anything without being centered on Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit. Speak the truth. Don't give in to the culture that says, you can't speak the truth. You're infringing on other people's rights. Tell people about Jesus. Have the same boldness the early church did, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and he's the only one who can reconcile us to the Father. Show grace. Whatever you say, love people. Show kindness. Don't be judgmental. And pray. Pray before you say anything. Pray before everything you do. If you've never given your life to Christ, you can do so right now as we pray. Father, thank you for this account in Acts chapter 4, where we see the early church was, the message of Christ was unstoppable. Help us to have that same conviction today. We know how this all will end. Christ will prevail. It doesn't look like it in this world. Things look very dark and ominous. But we believe that the message of Christ will prevail in this world. And so help us to speak that truth and to show grace and pray. I want to invite you to pray right now. Tell him you want to be bold 
and talking about Jesus this week. Don't be silent. Jesus is the only hope of the world. And if you have never given your life to Christ, ask him to come into your life. Tell him you believe he was raised from the dead. He's the son of God. Ask him to forgive your sins. You pray. God, thank you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. Jesus is the Son of God, the way to the Father. And you give us the Holy Spirit to give us power to share that with the world. Help us to do that with boldness this week and confidence. In Jesus' name we pray.